Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Welcome to Mamma Mia Out Loud, three women sitting around a table agreeing and disagreeing on things. I'm Rachel Corbett and this is my last week filling in for Holly Wainwright while she is writing her book. Her deadline is looming. Good luck, Ollie. I'm Desi Stevens. And I'm Mia Friedman. And on today's show is Gwyneth Paltrow of movie and more recently Jade Vagina Egg fame, the new Belle Gibson and Mia has many feels about school holidays. But first... Good evening. He's been remembered as one of the greatest players of his generation. Kobe Bryant, a 41-year-old retired NBA basketball star. Killed alongside one of his daughters. The news broke on Sunday, the untimely death of the sports legend who was flying to a youth basketball game with his 13-year-old daughter and seven others. No one survived. On Monday morning, many of us woke up to the news that 41-year-old Kobe Bryant, uh, one of the best basketballers to have ever lived, and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna Bryant, had been killed in a helicopter crash. They were on their way to one of Gianna's basketball games. Her teammate, Alyssa, was also inside the helicopter. Of the nine people who departed from Orange County, California that morning, none of them survived. We know that Bryant was a devoted father to four daughters. Gianna, whose basketball team he coached, was an athlete in her own right, seemingly destined to follow in her father's footsteps. Bryant was married to Vanessa Bryant for 20 years, who he described as his best friend. At the time of recording, we still have a lot of questions. Uh, We don't know why the helicopter crashed, although an investigation is underway. The bodies of the nine casualties, I believe just this morning, were recovered. A conversation has started to emerge about Bryant's legacy and charges brought against him in 2003. But today, um, only days since we learned of this horrific accident at a time when three young girls are mourning a father and a sibling and Vanessa Bryant is mourning a husband and daughter, it doesn't feel like the right time to talk about it. There will be plenty of time to talk about Bryant's legacy, we're sure, but today is not that time. Instead, I wanted to ask a question today about celebrity deaths and their capacity to throw what seems like the entire world into mourning. For us, and I'll assume many of our listeners, we didn't personally know Kobe Bryant, but there was something so shocking and affecting about not just his death, but the manner of how he died. Mia, what was your response on Monday morning? I gasped when I opened my phone and I saw the news and... I don't watch basketball. I know who Kobe Bryant is. And I felt really weird the whole day. And, of course, the added tragedy of there were other people on board. And I think the part that got me so much was thinking about Vanessa Bryant and losing a husband and a daughter on the same day is just so unthinkable. So the human aspect of it, of course, got me. But when I started to think about why it feels so shocking when someone really famous dies, I think it's the idea that no amount of money, no amount of fame, no amount of success can protect you from random tragedy. And that shakes all of our feelings of mortality. That makes all of us feel vulnerable because you think if someone with millions and millions of dollars and if they can't stave off fate – 
it's just feel, it's scary. Don't you reckon it's because they feel almost magical? Like they feel almost like yeah. this being that's sort of untouched. They don't feel like mortals, I don't think, celebrities. Yeah. You know, they feel like this otherworldly person that will forever exist because you feel connected with them in different ways. They're also timeless in a lot of ways because a lot of celebrities you'll see in certain television shows or movies and then you won't see them in their personal life. And, you know, when you see celebrities you haven't seen in ages and you're like, how did you get old? You're not meant to get old. You're not meant to get old. You've been the same age in my mind because that's the person that I connect with. So I don't know, sometimes I feel like they're kind of hyper real people rather than being real people and it sort of throws our brain chemistry out a bit to see them die because you're like, but hang on a second, they just exist on the basketball court when I'm watching them. Like how is that a real person? It made me think of other celebrity deaths that have felt equally shocking and, of course, Diana is is the most iconic one that I can think of. If you're a little bit older than us, JFK being assassinated would probably be another one and for our generation, Gen X, JFK Jr., um, and Carolyn Bissett and her sister Lauren Bissett falling out of the sky. Um, Michael Jackson was a huge one, I thought. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Michael Jackson. But there's something about deaths that are around drugs, like Whitney Houston, Amy Winehouse, Michael Jackson, or when they take their own life, like Kurt Cobain, that feels equally tragic and shocking but slightly different because mm. you can kind of – put I can mentally subconsciously put a, a distance and go well I wouldn't take drugs and uh, you know that wouldn't happen to me but the idea of there but for the grace of God go I and mm. someone as you said right someone as iconic as Princess Diana right someone who we feel like we know so well can be killed by something as mundane as not wearing a seatbelt mm. and a drunk driver. I think the message too is that and I've seen a few people share this that tomorrow is never promised and Kobe Bryant was 41, which is so young. And Barack Obama put it so well when he said that he was just beginning his second act. And my brothers, who are enormous um, Kobe Bryant fans, were saying that he was this figure. And this sort of explains a lot about how we're remembering him now. I think we remember him more as a symbol than a, a human, which, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to. But he was this person who represented strength and resilience and he was invincible. Like on that basketball court, he couldn't have been a stronger person. So the idea that mm. he would die in an event where he was so hopeless and so out of control is really shocking to his fans. And Social media is the other thing that I think has really changed in the last few sort of generations because people follow him on Instagram. So 18 million people followed him on Instagram. And when they scrolled through their feed, his family was alongside their own family. And it was all enmeshed. Their friends and who they knew in their real world and who they didn't sit on their Instagram feed as if we have a connection with all of them. And so people felt that they knew his daughter and that they knew his family. And all of a sudden, this person who is there which happens with death all the time. You go, where did this person go? This person was here and now they're not here and how am I meant to come to terms with that? And I think that happens just as shockingly when it's a celebrity who we might never have met as when it's someone who we know really well. Mm, particularly when it's somebody so prevalent, even when they go, like there would still be posters on people's walls, footage circulating. You know, sometimes you think some people pass away in normal everyday life. You might have your photo album and your memories, mm. but the fact that they're blasted everywhere, it really sort of brings this additional layer of life that makes it almost even more hard to comprehend that they don't, they're not there anymore because it 
it kind of feels like they are, you know. And we see his last text messages and mm. his last Instagram post and all of these things that are so human and you go, no, how can you send a text message and then two hours later be dead? That doesn't make sense in my head. Yeah, and I so- went straight to his Instagram and he'd posted 16, it said 16 hours ago and it was a post and that is just very hard to comprehend. And of course, it's interesting what you say about social media and how that's changed things in many ways terribly. I mean, TMZ were reporting that he had been killed before the Bryant family were informed. And I noticed that the media held back a lot of the other names until the families could be informed. But these things spread so fast now. And I think it's also important to to acknowledge there were three people that were all from the same family, a mother, a father and a daughter who were on that plane. And there were on that a helicopter and there were you know the Bryants are, are obviously getting a lot of attention there were seven other families who are in deep deep grief and there was a mother and daughter who were also killed so I think the extra layer of this is the idea of multiple people and the tweet or the the post that I resonated with me the most was someone saying can we please just all send our love to Vanessa Bryant right now because what she and and other members of families who've lost more than one person at a time, like how do you even wrap your head around that? This is Rachel from Perth. Hi, this is Meg from Melbourne. Hi, this is Julie from Sydney. This is a message for Out Loud. Thanks so much. Uh, Love Out Loud. Always listen to it. Think you're, you're all amazing. I accidentally went viral uh, over the weekend after I did a bit of a post, well, I'd probably call it a rant, on my Instagram account about school holidays. And if you didn't see my rant, my basic premise was that it was about day 4,756 of the school holidays last Friday, and they still weren't over. And what has occurred to me and probably many others recently is that the system is broken and someone cannot do maths because if you're a full-time working person, you get four weeks annual leave and children get anywhere from 12 to 18 weeks of school holidays over the course of a year. So even if you're in a household with two full-time working parents who stagger their holidays and don't have a second together, you're still anywhere, that's still only eight weeks that you've got covered. So most parents are just stuffed when it comes to school holidays. And this isn't an issue just when your kids are little. I kind of thought when my kids get a bit older and can look after themselves, It's actually worse in a way because my kids are now 11 and 14. I've been a school age parent for, you know, 15 years or so. And when they're that tween teenage, they flatly refuse to go to camps. But then I had to go back to work and you end up just leaving them at home all day with screens mostly unsupervised. So the maths doesn't work. And the other part of the maths doesn't work. Happy days. This week they're back to school. But they finish at 3 o'clock or 3.30. And what it's occurred, what I've realised is that the whole system is set up around the idea from generations ago that every household, every kid has one parent who doesn't work, who is full-time at home, able to pick up them from after school, drop them at school and look after them during the school holidays. And that just does not describe households today. And why aren't people marching in the street to protest this? Because the system is broken and we all take it on ourselves and think that we are personally failing, but we're set up to fail. I'm with you on that. And I, you made a really good point in the article you wrote that the reason people aren't protesting is because they're very tired and because they're trying to get people into the camp. Yeah. Um, so they don't really have time to go onto the street because they don't have any holidays left. But devil's advocate, 
I just don't see what the solution is, right? And I remember being at school and whether it was nine to three or it's a little bit later in high school, those days felt really long and they were long. And then you go and you do netball training or you do some other extracurricular activity and it's long. I detested after school care with my whole self. It was horrible. I just wanted to be in my own home. I wanted probably to be hanging out with my parents, which you're not meant to say. And I did have two full-time working um, parents and there's a myth that just because you're a teacher you get to finish at three and they don't. They wouldn't be home until probably six most weeknights. But I just don't see – I know that it was designed around, as you say, having a working mother at home often, but I don't think the solution is longer school days. I don't know if the solution is before and after school care all the time. I think it's really, really complicated. Is the issue that, like, teachers already have enough work so they're already working till six, so if you up the hours till five, then they'd be there till, like, eight o'clock and they'd never leave? 100%. Because it's not when school finishes as well. How do people think that the kids then get on a bus? Like, there's bus duty and then there's, like, the last kid left in the playground and then there's the marking and then there's the class planning and it's all of this. It would blow out to be a 12-, 13-hour day, which gets me to the fact that I don't think it's schools that need to change. I think that it's workplaces. Workplaces need to offer the flexibility for full-time working parents. And I mean, I know that it's something that needs to be worked out among families and we see it. It is people are functioning. And how are they functioning? Because of grandparents, because of, you know, maybe it's the dad who goes to work part-time. And I think that there's probably a lot of mothers who have to either go to part-time or not work for a period, even though they really bloody want to. But that's what happens when you have kids. But I do think that in places like Belgium, there was some great comments from people all over the world about how they do it. They adjust and they adapt because they have to. And the workplace demanding people to be sitting at their desk at 8.30 and sitting at their desk at 5.30 is not sustainable in in a world where two parents are working full-time. As an employer, though, I don't think it's feasible to expect the economy to run if everyone's working school hours. Because by the time you drop your kids off, if your kid starts at like 9.20 or whatever, by the time you drop them off at school and then commute to your workplace and then if you're commuting to then pick them up at the other end... That's like a five-hour day or a three, a four-hour day, and that just doesn't work. Yes, but I think that the, we need to rethink what work means. It's not just sitting at your desk. If it means that you then pick your laptop back up at 8.30 or if it means that two days a week you leave a little bit early and two days a week your husband leaves a little bit early. Or I know there's single parents, which is a whole other story of the mental load of having to sort that out just on your own. But I do think that something's got to give and I'm not sure it's a school system. I'm not suggesting that teachers work longer hours. Absolutely not. And I'm not suggesting kids be in school like formal lessons. But there are playgrounds. There are playgrounds that are set up with bubblers and toilets and play equipment and all of those things. Now, I'm not suggesting that the teachers stay on, but I don't see why in the public system it is not catered for that the kids then stay longer and just play. Like we used to come home and play in the street. Is playing in the playground... Unsupervised? Very different. Of course we did because we were Gen X and this is the other thing that's different. The expectations on parents is so different now because I was a latchkey kid. My parents worked full time. I, from age, you know, fourth class or so, I would catch the bus home, let myself in and then play with my friends in the street until my parents came home. And now the expectation is that parents will be there supervising our kids all the time. In the 70s, the average full-time stay-at-home mum spent nine hours a week interacting and playing with her kid. The average 
full-time working mum in, you know, now spends 25 hours a week interacting and playing with our kids and we still feel like we're failing because the expectations of the fact that kids need to be looked after and monitored all the time have changed. There's that, but the working week has also blown out. So when you were Mm. growing up, I think the day was very much eight hours and that included your lunch break and stuff. That's completely changed. I think that now it has blown out into 10 hours and still there's guilt when you leave. Mm. So I think that that's become an issue too. But were you suggesting that they should just have playgrounds with like no teachers left back and kids can just like hang about? In the playground. No, I think that um, there are a lot of people, you know, uni students, for example, who are learning to be teachers, right? And so why can't it be subsidised? Because after school care, if you need before school care and after school care, if you work a normal working day, that's going to cost you so much money every week. It can, might be $200 a week that you are spending extra to just... At be least. able to but go to work. Isn't it the issue that it's like so much more difficult for people to actually get all the accreditation and the experience and stuff to look after children? Because sure, there was a time where you'd bring somebody down from the milk bar and go, can you just have watch little Johnny while I go and do something over there? Unfortunately, public liability and, you know, all manner of issues that have happened over the last mm. however many decades mean that now all of a sudden that I would assume that there would be probably people that go, we could make this easier, but for for that one litigious parent who yeah. uh, sues us when Johnny, that. you know, cuts his knee, forget it. It's not worth my time. So. Early childhood workers have never been more qualified. Mm. And then there's all this resistance to then early childhood workers, especially, are so underpaid. There is obviously a gap. There's parents going, I can't afford to pay you that much to look after my child. And then there's early childhood workers going, I'm getting paid a shit hourly rate for how much I've studied, which is where the government needs to come in, where there needs to be some kind of subsidy, which is where, like in Belgium, for example, they have that set up where it's like the government covers some cost. And I agree that that needs to, it, surely it's good for the economy because people are going to work. And then same with school holidays. You know, I think that there should be the option, It's high school obviously is a different story, but for primary school, schools should be open in school holidays, not staffed by teachers, but so that full-time working parents have the option of having somewhere to send their kids and not having to, I mean, it's it's like, I feel like no one, we're all being gaslighted, like no one's saying, hey, this is, we're, we're being set up to fail, this does not work. There is some kind of subsidy for before and after care and holiday care, but it's tiny. It doesn't go anywhere near covering what you would need. And the problem with this is that the system's broken and so many women surrender and they leave the workforce not because they want to or they work less hours or take lower skilled jobs, not because they want to, but because they just don't know how to manage their lives otherwise. And that's a terrible thing for women. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. This is Mamma Mia Out Loud. What we try to do with you is to explore ideas that may seem out there or too scary. We've talked a bit about Gwyneth lately on the show and Goop Lab 
Her TV show has hit Netflix uh, where her and her team at Goop explore alternative therapies. It's clear that she's obviously trying to um, make sure she offers all disclaimers because at the front of the show she says this is for entertainment purposes, not medical advice, so making sure that she issues that early so nobody thinks that she's pretending to be a doctor. And there was an interesting piece in the Sydney Morning Herald by Casey Edwards about Gwyneth's interesting approach to this where she brings in experts and asks questions so that they can be the ones saying stuff rather than her actually saying stuff and whether this is kind of dipping into a dangerous territory where she's starting to become a bit of a Belle Gibson. Belle Gibson is, of course, the woman who started up um, basically a wellness app and a program where she was saying to people that she cured her brain cancer by natural therapies and a lot of people bought her app and bought her message and put a lot of faith in what she was saying and now she's been called out to be a fraud and I think she had it was $400,000 she was supposed to pay back and she's been in court and it's just all a giant And she never had brain cancer in the first place. To be clear, it's not that Gwyneth's claiming that she's got something that was necessarily cured. It's more when you've got people with no qualifications floating these ideas about alternative therapies, it becomes a bit problematic. Mm. One of the things that Casey said in the uh, article that I thought was quite interesting, she said, toss in phrases like healing modalities and psycho-spiritual experience, mix it with some earnest nodding from people who have PhDs, never mind they're from institutions you've never heard of, and you might start to believe that Goop's offering is entirely based on proven science. And that's the sort of dangerous part where the implication is this could be really, you know, I mean, look at this scientist, this PhD person over here who, does, you know, has been somewhere that we've never heard about. So it's just giving potentially false hope. I very quickly watched 15 minutes of the first episode of Goop Lab. It was an episode on magic mushrooms, on hallucinogenics and going and healing. So the team from Goop went to Jamaica and tried to heal themselves by taking magic mushrooms. Honestly, I couldn't get through 15 minutes. Mm. I thought, I'm a pretty open-minded person, but there was just something where I was like, I'm not entirely sure this is super responsible. (laughs) All right, devil's advocate. Yes. She is not anything like Belle Gibson and psychedelic mushrooms have been scientifically proven as something that, you know, a... a, uh, As what? As something that can treat mental illness. Yes. There is scientific basis that a lot of really smart people, a lot smarter than me, people who have PhDs from places I do know, say that mushrooms, LSD, different types of psychedelics are something that could potentially, they are at at the moment in the process of testing it, help things such as depression and anxiety. We know that culturally we don't currently have a solution. The only way that we progress scientifically is by testing things. And if we do not test those things, then we never end up with the drugs and stuff we need. So I actually think that that was quite a, you know, a, a responsible thing to float. There's a lot of podcasts about it, a lot of books written about it by really, really smart people. And I also think that this is a failure of modern Western medicine is what we're seeing. And that's why Goop and Bell Gibson pop up in the first place. They're symptomatic of a culture that has failed a lot of people, specifically a lot of women who go to the doctor and say, I've really long periods. I'm in pain all the time. Maybe they've got endometriosis. And it's like, we don't know how to solve it. Maybe go on the pill. That's the that's the fix for just about everything. People have been so failed by medicine that they are going to these alternate routes as sort of a last resort. And I think that that's sad. I also think that Gwyneth is saying something that isn't that controversial. Really, if you deep dive on her website, 
you should sleep more, you should eat well, and you should do some exercise is the basis of most of what she says. Most of what's on there is about meditation, infertility, really interesting stuff that's relevant to women's lives. There is the odd suggestion of a detox. We know that detoxing doesn't work. That's when we've got to put our kind of critical hat on and go, mm, that's that's not a great idea. But overwhelmingly, I can see what she's doing and I can see why it works. But don't you think you muddy the waters of your message then by saying steam your vagina, shove a jade egg up your vag? Like, you know, I think that you, I am all for looking at alternative therapies and, you know, I I know that there is a lot of research out there that maybe things like hallucinogenics and things can help people. But there's something about the volunteers from the goop office who say, I want to expand my creativity. I want to get over childhood drama. Look at all these things that this can blanket help and sort of whizzing off to Jamaica Mm. that just to me feels a little bit of a light way to look at something that could be a serious help for people. If it is, tell me about that. I am ready to learn. I want to sit down and I want to learn everything about it. I want to know. I want to see controlled studies. I want to see how many people you've you've tr- tested this for. I want to see how many years you've done the scientific research. And if at the end of that you conclude these things, I am well on board. But this feels like a fluffy version of that. But are people going to click on that article? No. No one's going to click on the article about the controlled study. Yeah, but what about but- the people that are like, I okay, oh, look, Gwyneth told me that mushrooms will solve my trauma. I'm going to go and have this mm. horrible experience with a random person I don't know in Jamaica and next thing you know I'm like, I just, I it's dangerous. It's a way of putting it into popular culture. But hang on a second. Are you the same Jesse Stevens who last week was arguing about how irresponsible Pete Evans was? Yes. For just floating these ideas which, you know, about sunscreen being dangerous or about some of the other things that he says. He's doing exactly what Gwyneth Paltrow no, is doing. No, because Gwyneth Paltrow, this psychedelic thing, is actually grounded in science. That's which one she does. of the many things. Yes, that- but the jade egg example, which there was a civil lawsuit which she had to pay out yeah. $175,000 or something, and that was that was really bad. That was really dangerous. I think that it's worth looking at the context, which is that women don't bloody understand their vaginas and a lot of women have vagina problems that they're trying so to solve. So go and talk to a gynecologist. You don't have to spend $150 on a jade egg because the side of this that I think we're not addressing is that while this show might be entertainment and might be free on Netflix, it's an ad for Goop and Goop sells things. Goop sells vitamins. Goop sells those jade eggs and vaginal steamers and all the things that Gwyneth just wants to talk to these experts about and let's just float these ideas and explore these natural therapies. Doctors and scientists aren't necessarily selling stuff. I and so there's a I lot think of, there innately an, there's a conflict. There would be an argument that a lot of doctors are trying to sell particular things. They're trying to sell particular drugs. They've had someone come to them, a pharmaceutical company, and say that they want to move these mm. particular medications. We're completely lost. That's We're disillusioned by, the, by medicine, by Western medicine. And So what's the difference between Pete Evans talking about sunscreen and Gwyneth Paltrow talking about detoxing and steaming your vagina? The disclaimer. I think Gwyneth Paltrow has learned a thing or two. I think that jade egg thing was a real kind of seminal moment in her career. That was really, really bad. I was very much not team Gwyneth. But the fact that she's got that disclaimer, I know it's not much, but it says... Do you think anyone takes any notice of a disclaimer? No, but legally it kind of makes it all okay. Pete Evans isn't using a disclaimer. He's telling people to go and stop drinking milk and it'll fix your bloody but is it just sore about, bones. But is it just about what we do legally to make things okay or is there something that's a bit more moral I about what we do? no problem with a discussion about alternate therapies. What and about if there are alternate forms of vaccination? 
Well, I think that that's different and that's not what Gwyneth is doing, is it? But is Gwyneth that just because you don't believe that, that, like you believe in the hallucinogenic therapy but you don't think that you think people should vaccinate? Like is it a personal thing? Mm. I don't think it's a personal thing because as far as I've seen, Gwyneth hasn't told anyone to stop doing anything. She's saying we have this epidemic of depression and anxiety and um, a lot of like sexual repression within women sleep issues, whatever it is, she's looking at these massive cultural issues that medicine has failed to really seriously address and she's going, let's look over here. She has this really good uh, sort of disclaimer on her website that says, our goal has always been to ask questions about our sex lives, our spiritual lives, the food we eat, how we work out, what happens when we die and we know we're not the only curious ones. The answers help us to get closer to what well means to each of us individually and we hope they're helpful to you. As far as I can see, I might be wrong if anyone has any other evidence or if she's saying that this will cure cancer, but as far as I can see, that's what she's doing and I'm cool with people asking questions. But I I just fear that dressing this up in a cashmere sweater in a lovely soft lit environment makes it feel like this is going to be the experience that you are going to get. I have a friend of mine who's training to actually do therapy with people with hallucinogenics and to run those therapy sessions. And the person who runs those therapy sessions and having like a safe pair of hands to guide you through and to is so important. I've also on the flip side have friends of mine who've, you know, done mushrooms or and had the most traumatic, heinous, awful experience. And the thing is there's a, a huge lack of control with how your brain chemistry is going to react, how your emotions are going to bubble up, what's going to happen for you. So it's just like if you're going to do it, it needs to be in the right environment and I just feel like this makes it all look so pretty and easy. You just mm. jump on a plane, you hop over to Jamaica, you talk to Jan who's been doing it for a while and is into the Indigenous therapies. Next thing you know, you're crying next to somebody you didn't know. You turn around and you go, I feel more creative. Woo, back to goop. <laughs> and it's like that's not how it works. It's grossly privileged. I'm yes. with you on that. It's grossly privileged. It's very white. It's like what can we learn from the Indigenous, yes. which is really uncomfortable. However, here's an example. My sister got told last week that she was um, enormously iron deficient. So she went and got, they said, you need to come in tomorrow for an iron thing. Infusion. Infusion. So she went in, she got it. Two days later, she fainted. Then she spent an entire day vomiting. And at no point did anyone warn her that that might be something that happens when you get an iron infusion, which is actually pretty well known. When I went on antidepressants for the first time, I fainted, I vomited. I was in the worst state of my life for a week. You could argue that that's the equivalent to what happens with people on mushrooms. So there's risk, but there is also what? risk. Hang on a second. Haven't you just got a bad doctor? Yeah. Like my No, no, no. My doctor told me when I went on um, anti-anxiety medication, I got all the warnings and... Well, what I'm saying is, and I know that this is sort of not just a one-off because I've spoken to a lot of women about it, but a lot of people have really, really bad experiences on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. We know that the incidence of um, suicide actually spikes after you go on it. A lot of doctors aren't sitting people down and telling them this. It's the same with the pill. They don't sort of say, oh, it might cause weight gain or it might cause depression or it might cause anxiety. That's a but reality that hang doctors... Hang on a second. Firstly, it says all of this on the pack. 
I find that my pharmacist warns me about everything when I go and get a script filled. I don't. Um, my doctor does. Oh, I think you need to maybe go to a different chemist and find a different doctor. I've gone to a lot of different doctors and you can go and get the pill or whatever and they don't even check your blood pressure. Like I'm just saying that and this is not bashing doctors. It is just saying that there is fallibility, that there is flaws mm. in the medical system that currently exists. It is not perfect and someone has one bad experience or several bad experiences and then they look towards some alternate therapy, which often is promising something that will take them five minutes, which I think that Gwyneth sometimes does, something very simple and they think maybe... And will maybe, cost a huge amount of money. Exactly. And, and they're thinking maybe that will cure it. And I'm not saying that it will cure it, but I'm saying that I can understand why people want to look at a variety of, of options when they're suffering and they're in pain and they don't know what the answers are. Well, we'd love to know what you think about this whole Gwyneth medicine, flying to Jamaica, doing things. There's a sexual episode. I was like, I can't watch that. People oh, are like rubbing themselves and really? stuff on the oh, telly. I'm so into it. Oh, Jessie, are you steaming your that. vagina right now? I don't I'm, know. I'm not, but I'm into women getting more in touch with their sexuality. No, Go, I, Gwen. I'm Go vibing Gwen. on that, but just do we need to do it on Netflix? Do I, like, yes, I don't know. I'm absolutely. like, who's putting their hand up for that? Anyway, <laughs> we, I mean, we stopped the conversation. We want your thoughts. Head into the Out Louders <laughs> Facebook group, Mamma Mia Out Louders, and tell us what you think. All right, that's it for the show. Uh, We have to say two very important Mamma Mia Out Loud special bushfire relief show is happening Friday the 11th at the Alex Theatre in St Kilda in Victoria. 100% of the ticket sales are going to the Australian Red Cross Disaster Relief and Recovery Fund and you can purchase digital tickets so you don't even have to get out of your PJs. You can watch it on the lounge with your girlfriends uh, with a few snacks. It's going to be so fun. We have the most incredible setup. It's going to be amazing. Oh, set up. Look, we've got a set up. We have a very professional setup. Let's just say it won't be filmed on an iPhone. And Ooh, a special guest that. star for, yes, we for do. Out Loud. As you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll be very excited about our special guest star. And special costumes that I don't even hate. Mm. I don't hate them. In fact, I'm happy with them. Get out. Yes, clickbait. Oh, goodness. All right. Well, this episode of Mamma Mia Out Loud was produced by Lem Zakaria. We will see you on the Friday show. Bye. Bye.